0: At a pretty early age uh, I learned that, and I think, I think this is true. I think it's common to our experience, uh, that warning, don't mix religion and politics at family gatherings. So here we are. Thanksgiving of course comes to mind And that was uh, kind of proverbial but now we have Facebook so who needs a holiday or a family gathering to start a fight over religion or politics Why is it that religion and politics is So dangerous. Well, God and country are conversations that involve our most cherished beliefs. If belittled or treated with contempt, anger's quick to follow. I know this when I was seven, seven, mind you, and George, my best friend, was eight we got into an argument over religion and as it snowballed we dragged our fathers into it. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad can whoop your dad. I don't know who it is in the middle. But I started it. You see, George was Catholic, and I wasn't. I didn't even know what a Catholic was, but I wasn't Catholic, and George was. And I didn't know what I was, but I knew I wasn't what George was, and what I was was what George needed to be, because George was my best friend, and he didn't talk about Jesus the way I had heard it, and that was a problem that needed to be fixed according to the way I saw it. So we got in our first big argument, but then politics followed. By the way, isn't this the craziest election you've ever seen? It is the craziest I have ever seen. And I speak as one who remembers when Dwight Eisenhower was president. That was 1959. In 1960, George, my best friend, the Catholic friend, And I, his best friend, the non-Catholic who didn't know much, got into a new argument over religion and politics, over presidential candidates, Richard M. Nixon and John F. Kennedy. To me, Nixon was better. I knew this at seven because he was not Catholic. (laughs) And John F. Kennedy was. How does a seven-year-old become such a political zealot? Parents. Adults. Same for George. We heard parents talking. I heard one version, George heard another. Parents, of course, know the score. In our home, I overheard it said that if John F. Kennedy was elected, someone named the Pope would be running the country, and kids like me would have to go to Catholic school, and only priests could perform marriages. And that this would be a certainty, this would happen if the Russians didn't blow up the world first. And this fever was rabid. And elementary kids like me and George were contagious at grade school, stumping for candidates. Forming juvenile political parties, all because we overheard adults talking. On the night of the election, we were running in the streets, (laughs) taunting each other, the neighborhood kids in a game of play and tag, a riot of shouts, sweaty fun, shouting standoffs about Nixon and Kennedy. I quit at 8 p.m. I had to. It was my bedtime. (laughs) And you know, telling the guys didn't seem to seem odd at all. It was fun. I thought. But just for good measure, I turned back around and I shouted as loudly as I could, My Nixon will beat your Kennedy! It was a very tight election. Some of you remember it. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Off and on, we'd run in the house to ask our parents, Who's winning? And it was a seesaw battle. So at one moment, one kid would yell, Nixon, and then another, Kennedy. George had just checked in before my bedtime, and he came running out of the house, whooping and hollering, Kennedy is winning! Kennedy is winning! Man, I hated that. He was lording it over me. Not only was John F. Kennedy winning, I was losing. I was going down with Nixon, losing my best friend. I'd have to go to Catholic school if the world didn't blow up. And the election hadn't been decided until very early in the morning, around 3 a.m. I didn't know that. I was asleep. John F. Kennedy won. The Catholics won. And I didn't talk to George or play with him for several days. It seemed like years. And all that time, I was waiting for the end of the world. That was ten presidents ago. Following the horrifying death of President Kennedy, And I thought it was horrifying. I was glued to the television, its black and white presentation of all things having to do with the assassination. But after his death, other presidents and administrations came and went. Presidents Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and now President Barack Obama. I'm not waiting for the end of the world. I decided to end it myself, and I did. Years ago, when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord, my King and Savior. You know what I mean? Since religion and politics cause us to think about big things, things that matter, things that are scary, I'm asking us to think about bigger things, even bigger things. So let's pray. Let's stand. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus had a lot to say about politics and religion. Did you ever thought of that? Jesus had a lot to say about religion and politics when he taught his disciples to pray. Yours is the kingdom. That's what he teaches us. That is God, our Father. That's the... Shocking part, we address him as our Father. Yours is the kingdom. And we are to pray. We are to pray his way, the way Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Mark Twain said, you can't pray a lie it speaks to the character of prayer. Here is the very heart of Jesus and he puts allegiance to our Father, his kingdom, his will first. First. Everything that concerns life follows behind his name His kingdom, His will. Our needs are submitted to Him in verses 11, 12, and 13 of Matthew chapter 6, where we find the Lord's Prayer, which we didn't read, we prayed. And our needs... Are submitted to him and satisfied because he's king, and we call the king our father. Our physical needs, represented by bread in verse 11, our heart toward the obligations of all our many relationships, represented by debts, debts even owed and debts forgiven, verse 12, and our protection and deliverance in life's severest tests and adversity, including the evil one, all these are submitted to him humbly, expectantly, confidently, because he's the king whom we call our Father, That is a privileged relationship, an extraordinarily intimate and privileged relationship. All these cares and concerns are submitted to God because it's his name we hallow, which is to say that we make holy because of our devotion because of his elevation and our commitment to him. It's his kingdom we pursue and promote, and it's his will we want and do on earth as it is in heaven. We are not only to pray his way, but to put him first. What does his kingdom, God ruling as God, look like? What would that look like if we could see it with our own eyes? It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Jesus practiced what he preached. That's what we call and we admire integrity, authenticity. That's what his disciples are to reflect that integrity, that authenticity of the kingdom at work in our lives. Because Jesus, it's that simple. Disciples start with prayer. Jesus orders our lives through prayer. What could be closer to who we are? Than prayer. We are to make prayer and life go together, and our prayer begins with hallowing his name, pursuing his kingdom, and doing his will. If we pray for his kingdom, we live for his kingdom. And for that to be true, he must come first. Where he is first is where he reigns, where he rules, where he is royal, where he is lord and king and president and legislator and senator and policeman and every other authority you can think of, he comes first. That's the expression of his reign, his kingdom, planted, growing in our hearts. Jesus should not have to say, what about me? Where do I fit in? Where do I fit into your politics, your daily affairs? He should not have to ask, am I just for the future? Or some other time that you can't handle? We are to put him first. And we are to pursue his kingdom. The kingdom has come in the coming of Jesus Christ. That's an invasion. It was so even within his own country, his native country, his native land. Following Jesus meant switching allegiance, because yours is the kingdom. Paul understood this. This is not some particularistic or skewed reading of the Gospels or the Epistles. Paul understood this too. In Galatians 3, 27 and 28, we read, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Baptism is not a hazing. It's not some, you know, those crazy frats. Look at what they make their initiates do. Baptism is the most precious thing that we do and have done. Because it is that moment at which we die to ourselves and we are raised to life with Jesus Christ. That is one death in which we can rejoice because it is new birth, new life, new beginning. We part our history from our future, and we live in the present in a way that we've never lived before because we are in him. Paul said, I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me, and that should be our cry in Jesus Christ. That's from Galatians 2.20. You see, that's new kingdom language. Without borders. Without a nation. Without a flag. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Is the kingdom come? the royal rule of God, flexing his kingship and extending his kingdom in this world, in me and in you. Yes, we pray, your kingdom come. That reflects the tension of the already and the not yet. But that is an already, not just a not yet. We are to be faithful until he comes. When we pray, your kingdom come. It doesn't mean we are not part of it until it comes or that we are only waiting for it. In Christ, we belong to the kingdom of God because our allegiance belongs to the king of the kingdom, the Messiah. Should we be threatened or captured, we do not give up our loyalty or our uniform in Christ. Though in prison, we pray, your kingdom come, yet we live as a representative of that kingdom. We don't live any way we want. Just waiting for it. We live as its representative. Or we don't live at all in Christ. We represent the reality of that kingdom in word and deed. Jesus' people. Are in a battle because they represent the kingdom. Had you ever thought of that? You are in a battle and many times unaware because you belong to the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. And there is a battle being waged. Paul spoke about this a lot. Here is one of the things he had to say. For we Do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You want big? This is big. This is really big. And you, in Christ, are on the front lines. That's what the Bible says. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, They are divine. They are not of human ingenuity and cunning. Our weapons are truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the Spirit, God's Word. As one believer puts it, as you battle the beast, be careful not to become the beast. Don't let the haters make you hate. And when they give you hell, Give them heaven. It's no longer a fad to say, what would Jesus do? And I'm okay with that, because for me, it's creed. What would Jesus do is what we are to do. So what's Jesus got to do with politics? everything. What can we actually do? Pray Jesus' way and set an example of God's royal rule. Just take one verse of Scripture, but you could feed on the Bible and never run out of things to learn and grow, but just something bite-side some bite size some spiritual kibble this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 this is the whole verse i'm going to give to you here are four things four things love is not rude love is not rude representatives of the kingdom are not rude how simple is that? It's almost defining love by showing us something that is a negative and not an expression of love. But if we are loving, we will not be rude. And if there is error in the kingdom of God, it is love. Second thing, love does not set its own interests as the most important. In other words, I'm not first, others are. I'm not the center of attention, I'm not the most important one, others are. Wow, not rude and not absorbed with myself. Okay, I can do that. I'm inspired, this is easy as long as I'm talking about it. Third, love is not easily offended. Not offended. Now, that might snag a few of us. Not offended easily. That's a good one. Because sometimes we get so touchy because we're focused on ourselves rather than others, because of him. And then we get rude. And the fourth, love keeps no record of wrongs. Can you let things go? Can you let yesterday go? Can you give new people, excuse me, can you give people a new start in your record keeping? That's what that means. And do you know how we do that? Because we have a great king whom we call Father who loves us just like that. And we're to love others like him so that we might have some appeal in word and deed in this world about another kingdom, another kingdom, another kingdom. Do people see us as citizens of this nation belonging to a political party before they see us as Jesus' people belonging to God's kingdom? I think that's a fair question, but it's a hard one, isn't it? And, and maybe this morning you don't like some of the things that I'm saying. But this is not personal. I have to listen to myself. I have to take this to heart. And this is a really good question when it comes to Jesus' people. If people think of us as our connection, because of our connections to a national party first, then we have things backward. It's as plain as that. Or we're living in a two-part life in which Jesus has this part, and then we have all this other part, and we switch back and forth. But you see, that's not what Jesus did, because what he said, he did. What he did, he said. We call it integrity, authenticity. Here's another thing we can think about, talking about practice. We are to be more concerned... With how we live, think, speak, and act like Jesus. That's why they're called disciples, followers. We're to be more concerned with that than we are with our national politics and its parties. We already have a politic, and it is Jesus. It's living. And belonging to the kingdom of God. Jesus never supported any human king or religious political party, not the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Essenes, or Zealots, and they all had their fingers in the politics. He did call Herodians, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes, and Zealots to follow him, to join his party, his kingdom. One did, but later betrayed him. In the churches, in the clutches of Roman power, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Another thing we can do when we pray Jesus' way and consider politics, especially as we consider our vote on November 8th, I believe it is, and now you might think, I'm sticking my nose too far, but I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I just want you to think about your vote. Is that okay? How will your vote identify you as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Does casting your vote express a stance that puts you in opposition to what Jesus stands for? What Jesus taught? I knew when I wrote that down that that was going to be kind of a stinky question. So, I want to back up off that because, yes, votes are secret. But since we are Jesus people, it's healthy to ask ourselves, if I had to actually stand beside my vote and publicly identify with the candidate for the next four years, would that affect my support? Okay, maybe that's still too tricky. Let's put it another way. Let's put it another way. Would Jesus stand next to this candidate and say, I support what this president says and does? If you can imagine that, imagine this. Could Jesus stand by this candidate at the same time be taken seriously? Would then Jesus' stand and his words match? Would his stand and his ministry, his actions, his parables, his teachings be compromised by standing for this candidate? Would Jesus' life and his gospel be glorified or vilified by standing with this candidate? Hey, not fair, you say. This is not realistic. And I agree, it is not realistic. And the more we use conventional standards of what is realistic, what is practical, what works in the here and now, then the more we move away from Jesus. What works and what's practical doesn't need faith in Jesus, who called us to pray his way, put his kingdom first, and to pursue his kingdom over ours. Otherwise, otherwise, what works, just like our politics, creeps into the way we conduct ourselves in every area of our lives, business, work, school, neighborhood, home, and in the end, we look just like the world and worse by being realistic. Realistically, we belong not to the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of this world. But I want to end on a happy note. Although that wasn't such a bad note. Remember George? George became a Christian. Christian means a little Christ. He died to this world, became alive to Jesus. You know, he could have been from a Baptist church and have that happen or an Episcopalian, or a Presbyterian, or a Mormon, or a Muslim, or an Atheist, because it's a new Father whose name we hallow, a new kingdom whose will we do on earth as it is in heaven. you stand with me? I like think I've got one more sermon to preach, so be, don't kill me yet. Let me finish out the day. I do think think that you should take these things to heart and in prayer. Let some of these things guide you as you think about this crazy election cycle. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work and movement of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for this chance to gather and worship you and hear from you. We pray, Father, that you will help us to sift these things and know what indeed belongs to you. What kinds of changes that we ought to make in our outlook and our attitude and our actions as we seek to follow you be called by your name. And it is in your name that we pray. In the name of Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you.